Well, we are in the middle of a series called Retold. And in this series, we are telling you true stories from history. And this particular week, we are synced up with our children's ministry. And uh, as we have been, as they teach this week, if we were gathered together about Daniel's, Daniel in the lion's den. It's in Daniel 6. Now, let me just say this to you. If you um, have smaller children, we encourage you to use the Watermark Kids Kit and to um, walk your kids with creative activities um, through the scripture there and then come back and learn what we have for you here because we think it's going to make you a better parent and a better teacher. And you're going to see from the text today even that uh, when you are an individual that does not uh, fear the God of Daniel, that it has tremendous implications for your family. So I just want to read the story, and then um, I'm going to let you know that we're not here to focus on Daniel. Daniel is not the hero. I don't want you to be impressed with Daniel. I want to impress upon you that which was embedded in Daniel's heart that made him the hero of the land that he lived in. So let's read Daniel 6 together, and then um, we're going to dive in. So here we go. It seemed good to Darius. Now, I, 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 I have to just set this up by saying there's a pivot in Daniel, from Daniel 5 to Daniel 6. And the pivot is this. The empire that had um, devastated Israel is Babylon. They had come and um, wiped out, starting about 606 B.C., it took about 20 years till 586 B.C., all the Jews that were taken captive or killed, uh, the Jews that were still alive, uh, for the most part, had been taken captive and had been living in Babylon. And Babylon was a, uh, an, an arrogant, godless nation. And um, we know that Belshazzar had um, thought for sure with his 100-foot-high walls that were 80 feet thick, that there was no way that the Medes and per Persians that were conquering much of the known land at the time would ever be able to get inside Babylon. And he was throwing a, a wild party in Daniel chapter 5, and God appears with a flaming hand that basically um, wrote words up there on the wall to Belshazzar and all his guests that said, hey, you've been, you've been weighed in the scales and been found wanting. And judgment came that night to Belshazzar. And the Medes and the Persians are now ruling over all that had previously been captive to Babylon and over what was the greatest and most powerful nation in the world at the time, which was the Babylonians. But now the Medes and the Persians were in charge. And so there's a new leader, okay? But you're going to find out, even though Nebuchadnezzar is gone, even though Belshazzar is gone, and now that Cyrus and, and um, uh, Darius is how he's called right here in Daniel chapter 6, that's probably a name, like Caesar is a name, or King is a name, or Pharaoh is a name. Darius is probably the name of the leader of the Medes and the Persians, whose name was Cyrus, and he was there. That's who Daniel was interacting with. Here's what I want you to see as we get going. Nations rise and fall. Isaiah 40 says that they are uh, meaningless. They are nothing, less than nothing to God. Um, throughout time, God says in Acts 17, 26, uh, in a verse that's relevant to us both with our day and um, also with this text, uh, Acts 17, 26, is he, he, it says he made from one man, which we've talked about recently, every nation of mankind, one blood, to live on all the earth, and watch this, having determined that nations would have their appointed times and what the boundaries of their inhabitation would be. And we're finding between Daniel 5 and Daniel 6 that the time of Babylon had moved on. The Medes and Persians were now in power, but what was to be maintained throughout all generations and throughout every nation was faithfulness. And you're going to meet Daniel. Daniel, you just need to know, is probably 80 or 90 years old. And he's still revered. He's still respected. Uh, and he is, uh, was a leader to Nebuchadnezzar. He was a leader to Belshazzar. And now he's about to be a leader to the king of the Persians. So here we go. That is a great legacy for us to follow in his steps. Uh, so it seemed good to this new leader to appoint 120 satraps, or basically local leaders over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over three, uh, over all the 120, there would be three, one of whom was going to be Daniel. And um, these local leaders 
we're going to be accountable to these three so that the king and his uh, administration would prosper. And it says, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the, the commissioners, among the three. And uh, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, I wish I had time, and we're going to uh, be more sensitive to time during this season when we're online to just really talk about what that word means. It means when everybody else was done, Daniel had more. Daniel had the ability to do what ordinary men couldn't do. And you're going to find out why Daniel had that ability. And there's going to be tremendous application for us. But he had a, a supernatural spirit, an extraordinary spirit about him. And so the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. And so he was uh, not going to be well loved because of that, because men were going to be jealous. You're going to see that in verse 4. The commissioners and the satraps began trying to find uh, a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. Inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. The only fault they could find in Daniel is that he took his faith really seriously and that he was uncompromising and he was separate from other men because he didn't do what other men would do because he had this extraordinary spirit inside of him. It's what believers should all have. Every single one of us should be holy. That doesn't mean we're, we're pulling back this way from individuals. It means that we live amongst individuals in a way that everybody can see. We're not just playing religious games. We are individuals who live in relationship with the living God. And it sets us apart. And he says this. Um, the commissioners of the Israel came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. They came with flattery. And all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together with, that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast in the lion's den. We're going to make you a god for 30 days. No one can pray to anybody but you. Nobody can worship anybody but you. Now, making a man a god is a bad idea. And when you tell somebody that they can be a god for 30 days, it's pretty evident that you're not a god and specifically the God who rules forever and ever. But nonetheless, this wasn't about their affection for Cyrus, uh, Darius, the king. It was about their uh, disdain for Daniel and their desire for power. And so it says, um, they said this, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, all but one, Daniel, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast to the lion's den. Now a king, establish the injunction. Sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the laws and the Medes of the Persians that it may not be revoked. There was a, a bit more of a democracy in the Medo-Persian empire and when a decree was made, it was um, so they wouldn't make hasty laws. When, when laws went into effect, they said, you'd be very careful when you make a law because we're going to live by it. And so Cyrus, honoring the wishes of the collective, went along with this, especially because the wishes of the collective appealed to his pride. Therefore, Darius signed the document. That is the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day. Notice he didn't do this all of a sudden, but it was something that he was already doing. He continued. And this is why he had an extraordinary spirit. We'll, we'll hit this point hard in just a moment. But Daniel didn't just go out all of a sudden in some protest um, be, uh, of prayer because I can't pray to God because you said I could. Daniel just kept doing what he was doing. It's what made him Daniel for decades and made him useful to the people. It says, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunctions. Did you not sign an injunction, Darius, that, that any man who takes, makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast in the lion's den? And the king replied, the statement is true. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked, and they answered and spoke to the king. Well, they said, well, you got a problem because Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. As soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed 
and set his mind on trying to rescue Daniel because he knew Daniel was a good man. He had heard about Daniel's reputation before he conquered Babylon, and he had seen it. Now, we're several years into Darius's reign. We already know that, um, that, that Darius, the king, um, Cyrus, probably through the um, leadership of Daniel, had given a decree already that the Jews could return back home. Ezra had already started to take some Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the people. Later, um, you know, Zerubbabel would go back and uh, rebuild the temple, and then Haggai would come and try and encourage the folks to, um, to persevere in this particular time. Daniel remained in Babylon under the Medo-Persians. He'd already had great influence, and so a couple years into it, um, uh, Darius had seen all that Daniel was doing that was good, and he didn't want his friend thrown into a pit. Let me just make a quick observation here because I'm going to get to this in just a moment, right? This is a guy who didn't want to see Daniel get thrown into the lion's den, just like Pilate didn't want to see Jesus go to a cross. But Darius, or Cyrus, and Pilate, in, even though they lamented what they had to do, they didn't do anything about it more than lament, and they loved their power and their prestige and their position more than they loved what was right and good and true. And so Pilate turned over Jesus, and you're going to see that Darius lets Daniel go to the lion's den, even though he didn't want to. Uh, just a quick little aside right here. Um, many people, rightly, are lamenting the injustices that have been happening in our society, um, specifically related to race and uh, systems that have long oppressed certain peoples. And it's not enough just to lament. Lamenting is important. It's appropriate to, to not want to see injustice happen. But if all we do is lament and we don't become people of action, we're exactly what the Bible says in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, where he says, if you're coming along and you see a brother that's in need and you just pray for them, God says, that's no help at all. But that's why we should love in word and uh, not just with word or with tongue, but also with deed and in truth. 3.17, you know, says specifically, whoever's the world's goods, and that good might just mean um, certain positions and privileges and powers, and you see your brother in need and they don't have those positions, privileges, and powers, and you close your heart against them because if you actually go to advocate for them, it's gonna cost you your position, privileges, and powers. Does the love of God abide in him? The love of God did not abide, did not abide in Darius or he wouldn't have thrown Daniel in the lion's den. It did not abide in Pilate or he wouldn't have sent Jesus to the cross. And it does not abide in us. If all we do is say, well, I'm not for that action, you are called to act, not just lament, but to be a person of action. Now watch, and so um, it says that um, he was deeply distressed, verse 14, and he wanted to deliver Daniel, but he didn't do anything about it. Verse 15, these men came by agreement to the king and said, recognize, O king, that's the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. If you do this thing, it's going to cost you. And so the king gave orders because he didn't want to do anything that cost him. And Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the signet rings of his nobles so that, the, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. Why? Because the sleep of the wicked is never peaceful. And the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel spoke to the king and said, O oh, king, live forever. May God send his angel, my God send his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also towards you, O oh, king, I've committed no crime. And the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. 
The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children and their wives. This is the note I made a little bit earlier, okay? When you are a godless individual, your rebellion is often imputed down through generations. It's often um, your way of indifference to God. Your lust for self and power affects families and children. Your your, um, relative uh, sloth and your um, maybe just ritualistic obedience, which is really disobedience, always affects those under your leadership. Now, it is not true that children of believers um, become automatically believers. And it's also not true that children of non-believers and of um, just nominative Christians, Christians in name only, won't become devoted followers of Christ. But you are putting a burden on your family. And in this particular case, when evil is ascribed or when they follow in your paths and they imitate you, it's going to lead to their own end and destruction. And children typically imitate their parents first until the grace of God interrupts. And if that's your plan as a dad, that God's grace is going to interrupt my indifference, my apathy, my lack of attentiveness, my lack of concern for spiritual things, my lack of evangelism, my lack of Bible study meditation and devotional leading, my lack of extraordinary spirit, but God's grace will interrupt and save my kids, I just wouldn't count on it. I just wouldn't count on it. But watch this. The king gave orders. They brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. They cast them, their children, and their wives to the lion's den, and they not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones completely eradicated, destroyed. Any memory of them is gone. And so Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in the land, may your peace abound. Here's how peace abounds. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now look, at um, a couple of quick comments right here. We are in an election year. And you're going to hear this election, which you heard in 2016, which is, this is the most important election in our lifetime. And I will just tell you that um, every election is important. Every election matters. But you know what really matters? What really matters is that our nation is made up of Daniels, not that it's led by a Republican or a Democrat. When we are a land um, that is governed by the people and that government should exist for the people and it should be made up of the people, who the people are really matter. We get the kind of leadership we deserve. And... In America, the reason that we are struggling is because we don't have Daniels, not because we have Cyruses or Belshazzars or Nebuchadnezzars. Our job is to be the kind of men and women that we're reading about here in Daniel 6. And it doesn't matter if there is a shift in power. It doesn't even matter if we go from being Babylonian to Persian. American to one world government, and that's coming one day. Read your Bible at the end, which if we had time, I'd read it to you. Um, But what matters is that in every system, you maintain faithfulness and in an extraordinary spirit, and you don't put your hope in Belshazzar, and you don't put your home in Darius. Now listen, you should want a righteous king, and you should do everything you can, but the way you get righteous kings, especially in America, the way that we're established, is to um, be living missionally the way that Daniel did so that in a democratic republic, the satraps and the commissioners are going to not put up with godless living and godless laws. So I would just encourage you with this, right? You should do everything you can to make sure you inform yourself as you vote this coming November. But remember that no matter what happens in November, it doesn't affect, Daniel, your ability to create a blessing. 
And what's going to endure forever is not the United States of America. What's going to endure forever is the God of Daniel. He's the one whose kingdom will not come to an end. And that is why when Daniel prayed, he prayed with his heart towards Jerusalem. We set our mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. We set our mind not on the White House, but on the great white throne judgment. And we want to be individuals that are faithfully doing what we can to have God's kingdom come on earth that is, that is in heaven, and therefore elections matter, and you don't want um, individuals in that office who don't care about groups of people in the womb or out of the womb. You can't vote for individuals and endorse kings who don't love every single person that God creates. So uh, a great challenge is before us to be Daniels and to set our heart on the coming kingdom and serve the one that we're in right now with that hope like Daniel did. Now let me just say this. This is not a story I want you today to walk away from and be impressed with Daniel. I want you to be impressed in your heart with what impressed on Daniel's heart that made him a blessing to kings in Babylon and in Medo-Persia and will make you a blessing today. And so I want you to understand this, um, that every story ultimately points to God as the hero. And the reason that Daniel was amazing is because he reflected God. Sometimes people come to me and they go, Todd, God used you to change my life. And I, I'm, I'm always, um, you know, or you changed my life is what they'll say. And I'll just always, first of all, you know, be tender in that moment and thank them. But I don't ever change anybody's life. Daniel didn't change Babylon. God did. And he was willing to use Daniel. And sometimes by the grace of God, when I decrease and Christ increases in me, God uses me. I'm praying that he'll use me today in your life as you look at the story in Daniel 6. And I want you to see who the hero is. The hero is not Daniel. Daniel was an, not, he wasn't like um, one of the mighty men of David who jumped into a pit in the midst of winter and killed a lion with his bared hands. That's in your Bible. Okay, Daniel didn't shut the lion's mouths uh, in the den because he was some young stud. No, he's 80 or 90 years old. Daniel loved God, and God chose to do something with Daniel in this moment that became um, a story of great renown. And guess what? Everything about Daniel points to the God of great renown. So we just read Daniel 6. I want you to, to listen to just what I did as I went through and made some observations about what I saw in Daniel 6. This is a story about one who is called the servant of the living God. If you read Isaiah, and this is the last time I'll say it, I'm going to keep reading it through, and you guys are smart enough to figure out what's going on here. The servant of the living God is the title of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. So Daniel 6 is a story about one who is called the servant of the living God, one who is hated by those whose deeds he exposed. It's a story about someone whose enemy could find nothing to criticize of him but his holiness, and he was hated for it. Daniel 6 is a story about someone who, because of his holiness, he was conspired against by leaders who wanted their power, and as a result of that, they, they put him and wanted him to go to a horrible death. Daniel 6 is a story about someone whose enemies manipulated a sovereign ruler who didn't want to put him to death, and because this leader loved himself and power more than truth, he was coerced to send him away to death. Daniel 6 is a story about a man who, in the face of betrayal and oppression, continued to pray and live faithfully. It's a story about a man who did not offer one word in self-defense. It's a story about a man who cried out to God for deliverance and a different outcome and said, if there's another way, let this happen, but not my will, your will be done. And even though he cried to God, he was thrown to death anyway. It's a story about a guy who was placed in a cave of death with a rock over it and a king's seal on it. It's a story about a man whose friends were devoted to him and mourned his death. Um, a man whose greeting friends rose early in the morning to see and if he was 
in his tomb. A man who was found alive among the place where there should be death. It's a story about one who was always a godly man who was raised from death because he was faithful. A man who was saved by the covenant faithfulness of God. A man who was declared with power to be in right relationship with God and innocent of the charges against him. A man who was coming from the grave who saw the crushing of his enemies, who when he came from the grave, saw his enemies crushed and he instituted a kingdom. Daniel 6 is a story about a man whose enemies are judged and crushed to the uttermost until no evidence of their existence or their power remain. Daniel 6 is a story about a man whose kingdom is established in righteousness and whose dominion is forever. It's a story about a man who through his rule, peace abounds because others come to recognize the God he represents. It's a story about a man who seeks the personal welfare of others and does the work of good to those who seek him. It's a story about the resurrection of the servant of the Lord and that his final claim to righteousness and right to rule is established through his deliverance from death. And it's a story about one who all who know him and follow his ways experience shalom or peace and that are blessed and will prosper to the end, live successfully. What's Daniel 6 about? Not Daniel. It all points to another one who would shut the mouth of a roaring lion seeking to devour all of us. And he has had his way with all of us. Daniel was not a God and righteous from the beginning, but he served a God who was so righteous that he would go to a cross and give his life for imperfect men like Daniel. And Daniel loved the God of covenant faithfulness who sought an unfaithful people and gave his word that he would redeem their life from the pit if they would just turn from their wicked ways and humble themselves and cry out to him. It's exactly what God wants you to do. So I don't want you to be impressed with Daniel. I want you to be impressed with the one that Daniel entrusted himself to. Daniel is a type. He's just a picture of the, the one who Matthew 12 says is the stronger one who goes into the strong man's house and shuts his mouth and drives him out. That's what Jesus did for us. And so I'm going to give you uh, 10, 11 points that I get from um, Daniel 6 so that you can have an extraordinary life, whoever rules in November. And so that you can be a person who leads, uh, brings others to a place of peace and a coming blessing, all right? Now, what I would love to do, and I'll, I'll do it a few times on some of the shorter verses, but I'm gonna give you some places to go read. We always put sermon notes together um, and have um, every point that we made, every illustration, every um, typifying, uh, every, every, everything that I observed about Daniel that typifies Christ, all those things will be listed there for you, um, as will these points that I want you to see. But let me just walk you through um, some, some, some truths that I get for you and me as we do what Daniel did. Number one, people of God are meant to be a means of grace and a source of peace and a blessing to a land in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, in their teens. When you decide that you're going to be a son of the law, when you decide that you're going to live holy lives and distinguish yourself in Jerusalem, when a marauding force comes in, they're going to see in you something different where they go, preserve that one. And let's take him and put him at the king's table. And let's train him in the ways of our land and teach him our languages. And let's take that distinguished youth and see if he can help us as we try and live lives of peace and prosperity. That's what the people of God are supposed to be. Um, Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, including living under an oppressor. 
so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, verse 15 says. Children of God, above reproach, in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the midst of post-Christian America, there should be Daniels and Daniels that are faithful, among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's our call. That's what Daniel was to be in Babylon. That's what you and I are supposed to be today. Secondly, the people of God are not just meant to be a blessing. We are meant to create a divide in the land because of the holiness of our faith. Do you get that? See, one of the problems, one of the reasons America has drifted to this cesspool of morality and indifference to racism and indifference to um, individuals who, uh, once they're in our country, are sometimes hated because they're not from our country, or because they're not yet out of a womb, are seen as indifferent and potentially expensive interrupting our lifestyle, whatever it might be, um, Christians have just gone along with no-fault divorce and with um, pro-choice mentalities and with Jim Crow laws. And um, Christians are, are the reason that we abolish slavery. But Christians were also the individuals that were distorting their Bible to continue slavery and then continued Jim Crow laws and racist activities in the South. Christians are the one now embracing the Black Lives Matter movement, which is um, not the idea that Black Lives Matter and White Lives Matter and Red Lives Matter and listening to black people are saying it doesn't look like Black Lives Matter today, but are embracing the Black Lives Matter movement, which is destructive to the nuclear family and will not bring blessing to our land, and they just kind of go along with it because they want to look woke. Well, I say to you, awake, O sleeper, and pursue righteousness. Christians are to be a blessing and a means of grace and a source of peace, but we're also to create a divide in the land because our holiness and our faith will not let us just go along to get along. That's what Darius did. That's what Pilate did. And it's what way too many Christians are doing today without thinking. Watch this. If, if you think I'm being too harsh right here, listen to what Jesus says. In Luke chapter 12, verse 49 through 53, he says, I've come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it was already kindled. I, I have a baptism to undergo and how I distressed I am until it's accomplished. I mean, I've got to go and I've got to be the one who lets myself be given to the lion. But I'll take my life back up again. But watch this. But I, do you suppose I came to grant peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five members in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, church against church, denomination against denomination, compromised pastor against faithful pastor. Our job is to, as much as we are able to be at peace with all men, but mark my word, peace is not always ours to experience. Because when you live extraordinary lives, ordinary lives don't much like the conviction you bring to them. Uh, let me just stick this in here so I don't miss it. Um, you, uh, you probably don't know this guy. This guy's name is August Landmesser. And uh, here's a picture of him in 19, uh, roughly 36. Um, August was in love with Irma Eckler. Here's a picture of Irma. Um, Irma and he married in um, the mid-30s, and they were pregnant with their first child, or maybe their second, when in September 15, 1935, something called the Nuremberg Racist Laws came into being, where they said, if you're grandparents, three of your four grandparents were born into a religious family. Whether you're religious or not, you are considered part of that race. Um, so Irma was a, a, a Jewess. And uh, whether she knew it or not, and whether August cared or not, is uh, not part of the story. I know he found out she was because she was labeled as such. And as a result of that, he was told he could not stay married to her. And she was pregnant, I think, at the time with their second child. He tried to flee to Denmark. They caught him at the border and imprisoned him. And the Nazis um, had said to him, hey, um, we're not going to kill you this time. 
we're going to put you in jail because you were that Jew girl, and uh, we're going to teach you a lesson, and you're not going to see her anymore. And then we let you out, and he went to work in a, a, a shipyard. It was the Blomvoss shipyard in Hamburg, Germany. And um, the Fuhrer came to that particular shipyard to christen a ship they had just built. And when he came, he gave a speech, and everybody saluted the Fuhrer when he came. Take a look at this picture. Now, you might have seen that picture before, and I'll show you uh, a picture inside of this of August Landmesser. Right there he is. Now, let me just tell you about August. What happened after this is they got him again, and they imprisoned him another time. And then they put him in indentured war, and he died in Croatia. His wife was sent to a termination camp uh, at Ravensbrück and died. But he divided himself from Nazi Germany. And he didn't go along with everybody else. There was a picture this week of uh, Sam Kuhnrap up uh, in San Francisco. And he said because of his Christian faith, listen, I think all lives matter. I think black lives matter. But if you want me to endorse the movement black lives matter, I can't do it. Christians are to be a blessing. And part of the way you're a blessing is you stand up against wrong and evil. You don't just lament at racism, you do something about it. Now we're going to gather here in a little bit and we're going to do actually a night of lament, of just prayer, of grieving. It's important that you hear stories of individuals in our body um, that have suffered and we don't want you just to grieve. We want you to act. And so you'll be hearing more about that. Um, It'll probably be a couple of weeks from today, but we'll let you know specific detail coming up where we're going to kind of raise the mark and we're going to pray ourselves to action. We're going to grieve the sin of indifference and the sin of inactivity. And we're not going to raise our hand to the furor of going along with a movement that is opposed to the nuclear family and opposed to democratic ideas that bring blessing. But um, we're going to move. And we're going to live with an extraordinary spirit. People of God are meant to create a divide in the land because of their holiness and faith. Thirdly, our faith is always personal but never private. (laughs) We should be known as the sun by day and as the stars by night. We can't be individuals who just hide. I mean, this is Matthew 13 Um, really, um, you know, we got to maintain our saltiness. That's what makes us a blessing. And that's what makes us somebody who will be a clear divide, that we don't live like ordinary sinful men that just go along to get along and maintain our power and status quo, but we live righteous lives. And we stand against all the evil that is in our land like Wilberforce did, like Spurgeon did, like um, Rosa Parks did. And we, we act. But watch this. You're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill. You don't just say, I've got my own little private faith, right? No. It's, it's, it's personal, but it's never private. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. You don't just do good for good's sake. You do good in the name of Jesus. You put on a lampstand, and it gives light to all. And the darkness hates the light, and you're not surprised by it. But people that are stuck in darkness love the light, and if they'll follow it, it'll lead to blessing. Fourthly, the source of our holiness and our goodness as the people of God is constant communion with the Father. We see that in Daniel, right? Daniel wasn't good. Daniel depended upon the good God, and he trusted in him. Jesus in John 14, verses 4 and 5, said just as much to us, Abide in me and I in you. Right, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, he says. You're the branches. He who abides in me will bear great fruit. For apart from me, he can do nothing. The source of our goodness is our devotion daily and continually, our prayer without ceasing. Our extraordinary spirit doesn't just come from prayers in the morning and at noon and the evening. It comes from a constant abiding with Jesus and with one another who spur each other on and tell us not to grow weary in doing good. That's why we're gathered together this morning. Fifthly, 
We should be the best of citizens when able and defiant when necessary. When we're asked to compromise, we say no. We're going to be the first to shut, be the shut down and the last to shut up. Um, I'm not going to read it to you because it's too long, but Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 20. You see that Peter, who says, I cannot stop talking about what I've seen and heard. All right? So we got to be the best of citizens when we can. But when they say you salute fascism, you go along with what doesn't hurt you, you go, no. You don't sing to your God. You don't praise your God. You say, nope, we're going to gather and we're going to praise our God. And I'm not talking about meeting on Sundays necessarily. I'm talking about being about the Lord's business. Sixthly, there will always be a remnant. And the remnant will always be tested. There was a remnant in Babylon. There's one in Medo-Persia. There was a remnant in Jerusalem when it fell. There was a remnant in Israel when it fell. There's a remnant in America today. And our job is to increase that remnant and to be about it. But that remnant is going to be tested. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening. The remnant is always tested. And you just want to be a person who finds your strength in the promise of God and be about it. Seventhly, there will be another day, watch me, there will be another day when a man will be exalted like Darius was and you will be asked to take his name as authoritative and you will ask to take his mark and you'll be asked to bow before him. Read Revelation 16, 17, and 18. The mark is mentioned, I think, in Revelation 14, but read 16, 17 specifically, 18 specifically. There is going to be a man that the whole world will be told, you worship him, you bow before him, you can't do commerce, you can't do industry, you can't eat unless you acknowledge him as God. And you prepare yourself to not salute that man. And you prepare yourself to be thrown to the lions. <laughs> That's not going to happen unless you know what Daniel knew, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew. Eighthly, God knows where his people are and he's able to defend them. Let me just read this verse right here. Paul, who knew how much he had to suffer for the Lord's sake, um, Paul was an individual that um, at the end of his life said this. Paul drew strength from the same story that I'm about to tell you right here. 2 Timothy 4, 16-18. Paul says, in my first defense, I was all alone. Kind of like Daniel was all alone. No one supported me. All deserted me but may it not be counted against them. Paul said, they don't have the faith I have. They don't know what I know. Do you know what Daniel knew? Do you love the God of Daniel so you can stand faithful? But the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me just like he did with Daniel so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And then he says, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. What do you think Paul was thinking about there late in his life? The same thing you got to be thinking about. The same thing that Richard Wormbrand was thinking about when he was tortured in communist Romania. Ninthly, the deliverance of God does not mean that the mouths of lions will always be shut. You just need to know that. God shut the mouth of lions for Daniel. He shut the mouth of lions for Paul. But Daniel eventually died. And the roaring lion who seeks us because of our sin one in a small way until the resurrection. Paul was eventually beheaded. Let me just read to you briefly Hebrews chapter 11. Read verses 32 through 40, but I'm going to read to you 37 and following, um, where it says that there were some that were stoned, some were sawn in two, some they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they went about in sheepskin and goatskins, they were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world wasn't worthy. They were wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised in that shortfall. Because God had something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The idea here is not everybody that's thrown in lion's den escapes the lions. But everybody who dies in Christ 
is raised again. The deliverance of God does not mean the mouths of the lions will be shut. Tenthly, the faithful among God's people are faithful to the end. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were not all of us. Daniel was faithful to the end. Paul was faithful to the end. True Christians are faithful to the end. Now let me just tell you, not because they're great, but because God preserves them. Philippians 1.6 says, I know, and I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work will perfect it till the day of Christ Jesus. And then I just close with this, because this is a, a sobering text. The one who hates the servant of the Lord will be crushed and devoured from memory forever. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. And so we should not delight in those that are thrown with the lion into the eternal pit forever. And it's why, my last point, I think it's the 12th one, it's a beautiful dozen out of Daniel 6, is this. People who have received the grace that Daniel received and Paul received and Todd Wagner's received, pray for their enemies. And they warn their enemies of the wrath that is to come. Proverbs 27 Verses 17, Proverbs 24, 17, 18 says, don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. The Lord takes no delight in the death of the wicked and I don't think Daniel took any delight in the satraps and the commissioners that were thrown to the lion's den and were devoured because they didn't just die in a lion's den. They, They moved to eternal destruction where they will never be remembered again except they'll give glory to God in their judgment as they suffer forever. And that is why we pray for our enemies. It's why we share our faith. It's why we declare the goodness of God. And as we keep our mind focused on the Jerusalem that is to come and pray continually, we pray for those who don't know the goodness of the God that we trust in, even if we're thrown into furnaces and lion's dens. I've been reading Uncle Tom's Cabin which if you've not ever read that book, I commend you to pick it up. It's a short 500-page read, at least in the size print that I'm reading. And, um, you know, it's so funny because Southern propaganda tried to make Uncle Tom out to be a a house Negro, uh, a boy who just went along to get along because he lived well in the masses' house. And let me just tell you, that is a distortion of Harriet Beecher Stowe's character, Tom. If anybody ever called me Uncle Tom... I would say that is one of the kindest things you've ever said to me. Uncle Tom is as much a Christ figure as Daniel is in Daniel 6. The brother to make a mistake in any of the pages. And there's a scene when Tom is being sold off his plantation away from his wife and his children. And they have just heard about it. And they are angry. And Tom's family is saying, I'll be glad to see that mass abound one day, she says. I'll be glad to see um, when he'll be burned up forever. And Tom walks in when he hears them all longing for the day of ultimate judgment. And he says, Chitten, I'm reading from the book. I'm afraid you don't know what you're saying. Forever is a dreadful word. Children, it's awful to think on. You ought none of the wish that on any human creature. And then Tom goes on to say, pray for those that spitefully use you. The good book says. One of the kids says, pray for him. Lord, it's too tough. I can't pray for him. And then he says, hey, Chloe, you ought to thank your God you ain't like them. I'm sure I'd rather be sold 10,000 times for a fleeting moment than I would to be found separate from the true master and king. Christian, you're meant to be a blessing. And you are meant to bring division. And you are meant to be a remnant. And you are meant to suffer. And you're meant to be fed to lions, sometimes delivered, sometimes not. And you're meant to be an evangelist for those who don't know the God of Daniel.
and of Paul and of all true believers. So, you don't salute to fascism this week. You don't put your hope in Babylon, Persia, or America. But you be a Daniel. You be a Danielle. And you pray for those who are going to be damned forever if they don't know the servant of the Lord. Let's go, church. Father, I pray that we would be trusting in you, the good God, in the goodness of God. And that we would be individuals that know that whatever falls us on this earth, it is a momentary light affliction. And we would rather suffer 10,000 injustices on this earth than not receive the blessing of your judgment and justice poured out on Christ on the cross and acknowledge our sin that put him there. And so, Father, as we sing this song again about your goodness, I pray that it would create in us an extraordinary spirit that would make us useful to our master. And we would serve faithfully through this tour of duty on this plantation that is earth as servants of our true king. Praying for all that are unjust, evangelizing, and having an extraordinary spirit like Tom, like Paul, like Daniel, like Jesus. And we thank you that we can be confident that you who began this good work in us will bring it about to completion until the day of Christ Jesus because your goodness is always running after us. And so we walk in that right now, Father. May your goodness overtake us and be seen in us so we can bring blessing to our land in Jesus' name.